Let us pray. Father, how good it is to come home through Jesus Christ. How good it is to walk with Jesus all the days of our lives. And how good it is to stop and, and to seriously consider the gospel of Jesus. And I just pray, Lord, that as we do so, you might help us to actively listen and critically think so that we might grow in our ability to radically love as we've been loved. All these things I ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all ever have those moments of why didn't I think of that? Those wonderful inventions you see and you're like, why didn't I think of that? Like the bacon bowl. Why didn't I think of the bacon bowl? What a fabulous idea. Doesn't anybody else agree with me or am I the only person that loves bacon this much? And if you think a bacon bowl is cool, what about a bacon taco? A bacon taco shell, y'all. Can you believe it? Why didn't I think of that? I could have been rich. Alas, I am but a poor humble pastor who talks about bacon. You know, whenever I see an invention I really appreciate, like the bacon bowl or bacon tacos, I always think, why didn't I think of that? I wish I'd have thought of that first. I think that might be the problem with grace. Not that grace is like bacon, though I could probably do a sermon about that. We didn't think of it first. Now, I'm going to unpack that statement a little bit more in a moment, but I just want to tell you first the distinction between mercy and grace, because I'm betting most of you don't know it. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. Hear that again. Mercy is not receiving what you deserve. And grace is receiving what you do not deserve. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. Now, to be fair, mercy is an element of God's grace. I get that. But it's important that we understand this distinction that God is more than merciful. He's more than forgiving. He gives us his grace, that which we do not deserve. I often explain it to my kids like this. Um, if you do something and I don't punish you, you've received mercy. If you do something and I don't punish you for it, and then I take you to get ice cream, you've received grace. Right? I think the problem with grace is we just don't like it. We say we like it. We sing songs like Amazing Grace and pastors like me pontificate upon how God has lavished us with grace. But if we're really honest, when we examine our own actions and our own thoughts, we see that while we are somewhat okay, maybe just a little bit okay with receiving grace personally, we're not so good with being gracious to others. And the problem with grace... The problem is with grace is that we cannot control the originator of grace, nor can we control who receives the grace of God. Because God is the originator of grace. His eternal life force is, is grace. Every action that God takes is permeated with his grace. In his prevenient grace, God reaches out to a world that is lost in sin and offers true love. That's the first bullet point. In His justifying grace, God offers us His Son as the one and only holy atonement for sin. 
In His sanctifying grace, God offers to perfect those who receive His grace and love. And God, He does all of this on His terms. And when we truly realize that there's nothing we can do about that, it can be frustrating. By the way, friends, just a quick show of hands. Who's ever heard of the term provenient grace? Raise your hand. Who's ever heard of justifying grace? Who's ever heard of sanctifying grace? Thank you for being honest. This is what is essential to Methodism. If anybody ever asks you, what does it mean to be a Methodist? It's our understanding of grace. Nobody else has this understanding of grace. It's our contribution to Christian tradition. Provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace. That is at the bedrock of what it means to be Methodist. Look in our hymnal in the table of contents. You will see that the hymns are categorized by provenient grace, justifying grace, and sanctifying grace. Did you know? Now you do. You are so welcome. Right, I can see somebody right now. Okay, this sermon's going to be a yawner. I'm going to turn in the table of contents and find these hymns. I think as human beings, we really struggle with why God offers grace. We struggle because we are susceptible to the false narrative of performance-based love. James Smith, in his book, The, The Good and Beautiful God, writes this. He says, if you ask the average person what you must do to get God to like and favor and bless you, the answer would be clear and consistent. Well, I think I would have to go to church, read my Bible, give some money, serve on committees, Serve the needy, oh, and and God does not want me to sin, or at least keep it to a minimum. If you've never heard this before, I want you to hear it right now. Grace has nothing to do with how we perform. The grace of God exists. And it is our God-given privilege to choose whether or not we will receive the fullness of grace. See, everybody receives God's provenient grace, but not everybody chooses to receive His justifying grace or to grow in sanctification. But I think so many of us are like the elder brother in today's story about the prodigal son. We think others don't deserve grace because they've not performed well. Or worse, have performed so miserably that they would be an embarrassment to the family of God. I think some of you even think that about yourselves. That you're an embarrassment to the family of God and you don't deserve His grace. And so we sing hymns like, just as I am without one plea. And we think God should accept us, maybe just as we are. But we're not really interested in accepting God just as He is. I think this leads us to the great misunderstanding. Because there is only one thing that separates us from God, and it's not the sins or the sinful behaviors we commit. It's our self-righteousness. Our self-righteousness does not turn God from us, but us from God. It's not our behaviors necessarily that move us away from God. It is our refusal of grace, both for ourselves and for others. You know, today's scripture lesson is often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But really, it's the parable of two sons. And which son do you think represented the nation of Israel as Jesus spoke? The elder son. And which son do you think represented the outcasts, the sinners, the Gentiles? 
the younger son. When we think about the story of the prodigal son, we're under the impression that prodigal must mean he who repented and came back. Right? He was way over yonder. He came to his senses. He repented. He came back. But that's not what it means. That's not what prodigal means. Prodigal means this. Prodigal means reckless, wasteful, and extravagant. Reckless, wasteful, and extravagant. Like this roll of toilet paper you're going to see on the next slide. Can you imagine? You know, I thought about doing something with money today for the children's message, but I was too cheap. (laughs) Reckless, wasteful, extravagant. And don't get me wrong, the younger son's actions were all of those things. He was reckless, he was wasteful, and he was extravagant. But have you ever stopped to think that the father was also prodigal? We thought about it as the prodigal son, but have you ever stopped maybe think it's the prodigal father? I mean, the father gave his younger son his inheritance before the father had even died. The younger son went out, he blew the whole thing, nearly losing his life in the process. And then when he returns home, dad throws a party for him. Are you kidding me? And he gives him all the best stuff. Y'all, there are two prodigals in today's lesson. The prodigal son and the prodigal father. And since we know that the point of the parable is to teach about the extravagant love of God, our Father, we're going to consider how the Father's reckless, wasteful, and extravagance was imprinted on His love. And so first, let's begin with the reckless love of the prodigal father. As we read the text, we see, but while the son was a long way off, his father saw him and and was filled with compassion for me. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Literally fell on his neck and grabbed him and kissed him. Now, y'all, just for a minute, just amuse me. Can you imagine being the son? You have been rehearsing your daddy take me back speech now for weeks. You crest the horizon and you see your family home in the distance. And your head immediately tilts down with shame. And there is a lump in your throat. Because you've been practicing and practicing this. And then you look up and you see your old man running towards you. And you think, oh no. This is worse than I thought it was going to be. He's going to beat me up. Before I can even grovel my way back into slavery. The father's love is so reckless that he doesn't even wait for his son to come to him. All the father needed to do was catch a glimpse of his son off in the distance. And he stopped everything and started running. He didn't even let his son give his prepared speech. He just threw himself literally around the son's neck and he kissed him. The father took a risk. He didn't know how it was going to turn out. Because the son might have come back and, and, and maybe hurt him. Or the son might, might hurt him again. But, but the father just didn't care. He missed his son so badly and was so happy to see him again that all he could think to do was run and hug that boy around his neck. Yes, the father, the prodigal father, his love was reckless. But it was also wasteful. 
The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now the best robe, y'all listen. The best robe, going back. The best robe. The best robe. Not the old robe that the son left behind. No, the best robe. The one that's reserved for notable guests. Not the old robe, the best robe. The ring. By putting a ring back on this son's hand, the father bestows his authority upon the son. And sandals? Y'all, sandals were a luxury. It's like these people were from Tennessee or something. Sandals were a luxury. Again, not a laugh, but you should have. Servants, slaves, they didn't wear sandals. They went barefoot. But the son's not to be treated as a servant. No, the father's not going to waste anything here. He he's to wear sandals on his feet. The father's already given his son his inheritance once. But this boy, he went out into the world. He blew the whole thing. The son wasted everything. And and now he's returning to the father with nothing. And the father gives him the best of everything. How wasteful. Because there's no guarantee that the son is not going to go right back out and squander that wealth. But the father, the father doesn't care about what the son may or may not do. The father only cares about where the son belongs. And that's with him. That's with him. And so the father's love was reckless and it was wasteful. But it was also extravagant. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. Well, most of them. You know, meat was not usually eaten at meals. Those of you that have seen the price hike lately know that we're probably going to stop eating meat soon. (laughs) Too, right? Meat was not eaten at meals often. Because of how expensive it was. The slaughter of the fattened calf. That was, that was something that was especially kept and fed for special occasions. And so that that's given here indicates a huge banquet, feast, celebrating this lost son. So this, this son not only received mercy from the father, but he received grace. Not only was he not punished, he got ice cream. Wasteful, reckless, extravagant. This is how God gives love. Because God is prodigal. He's sacrificial. And His love looks like this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whomsoever believeth in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For he sent not a son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God loves recklessly. And you know, in this passage, we see that the prodigal father recklessly loves both his self-righteous older son and his squandering younger son. Because God loves the reckless and the self-righteous the same. 
So put yourself in a parable. Who do you identify with? Are you like the younger son? Are you like the elder brother? You want to be more like the father? I know I do. You know, my call and my conversion stories both resonate with the younger son. I consider myself a prodigal son. And I think that's why I have a heart for those people who take the risk to come back to church after the church has hurt them. But the longer I walk with Jesus, the more aware and the more wary I become of the older brother response. Can you hear him now? Look, Daddy, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes and so much more comes home, you kill the cat and calf for him? Are you kidding, Dad? Like the cartoon says, he'd probably get the top bump too. Can you relate? You've done all the right things you don't understand. How can grace be for them? Whoever them might be. Listen, I'm going to challenge you right now. If you can't relate with the older brother about something in your life, then I believe you're lying to yourself. And if you just sit there and go, you tell him, Pastor, then I was definitely talking about you. Because all of us, friends, all of us need to be aware of our older brother thoughts and our older brother behaviors. Why? Because the church is often driven by older brothers. We no longer love recklessly. We no longer love conditionally. And many of the young people and not so young in our communities know it. A couple years ago, I had the opportunity to just be in, in the car driving kids around and just listening, you know. I heard one of my children's friends um, describe themselves as, well, I'm half Christian and half Buddhist. Now, you know, the theologian in me wanted to have a good time with that. <laughs> right? But I did not, like, I did not challenge this kid at all. I just heard her say it, and I said, tell me more. I was genuinely interested how she came to this conclusion. And, and I'll be honest with you, the conversation itself was a joy for me because this youth traveling in my car felt comfortable enough with me knowing who I am and what I do to have this conversation with me and not feel judged. And you know, if I'm being honest, it's much easier for me to recklessly love the outsider, to recklessly love the guest, to recklessly love the acquaintance, to recklessly love a friend of one of my children. Listen, but when it comes, when it comes to those who hold a piece of my heart, like family and close friends, 
That's where Randy's older brother thoughts and Randy's older brother behaviors come to the surface. Those of you who've been reading the book, you have utilized a passage from Paul's famous love chapter from 1 Corinthians 13 as homework for this chapter. You know, love is patient, love is kind, blah, 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 blah. Everyone misunderstands that chapter, by the way, from Paul. They think it's sweet. Oh, isn't love sweet? That's why it's read at weddings, because it's sweet. But love isn't sweet. Not the kind of love Paul's talking about. Mm -mm. No, that's teeth gritten, sacrificial, wasteless, wasteful, reckless love. It's teeth gritten love. By the way... (laughs) If y'all, if you're not married, but you're thinking about it, let me tell you, it's real easy to get married. It's very difficult to stay married. It requires sacrificial love. The kind of love that recklessly loves another because you have their best interest at heart and not necessarily yours. As Paul writes, he, he shares what reckless love is not. And it's important you hear this. Because reckless love is not. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. And friends, I believe that these are older brother barriers to our spiritual growth. And I think, honestly, each one of us struggles with at least one of these. Personally, I struggle with keeping a record of wrongs. I'm not proud of it. I have a file for everybody. I am Methodist. I am methodical by nature. I am a systematic theologian. I've got a file. And on that file is everything good that I've ever done for somebody I love and everything bad they've ever done to me. Do you hear that? Everything good I've ever done for them, not anything bad I've done to them, and everything bad they've done to me. And the longer I walk with Jesus, the less I want to keep this file on anyone. But it's a struggle. Because whenever anyone hurts my feelings, I either add to their file or I pull out their file and I reprimand them with their file. And you can say, well, that's just terrible, Pastor. You ought not to be that way. And all I can say is you're right. And you probably ought not judge me for it either. That's not love, Randy. That's not sacrificial. That's not the reckless, extravagant love that I've received from God and others. That's Randy guarding his heart, not resolving his conflict so that he doesn't get hurt any more than he already has. And I don't want that. I don't want that, and I don't want that anymore for my life. Listen. Friends, listen. Check your hearts. Because when you respond to another person with envy or boasting or pride or rudeness or self-seeking or hot-headedness, that's my second, or record of wrong-keeping, it's likely, friends, because your feelings are hurt. And I, I want to love like the good and beautiful God does. I, I want to recklessly love like our Father does. I, I, I want to sacrificially love like His only Son, Jesus, does. And I can, little by little, if I choose to partner with the Holy Spirit 
in renovating my mind, which, by the way, doesn't happen all at once, but takes a lifetime. So I apply these words to myself, and I offer them to you as a reminder. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Friends, we're in the process of renovating. We're in the process of renewal. Be honest about where you are and honest about where you're not. And trust that the God who extravagantly loves you wants not only to give you that love, but for you to give it to others. And that's his word seriously considered this day for Calvary Church and all with ears to hear. All thanks and praise be to the prodigal father, the prodigal son, and the prodigal Holy Spirit. Amen.